lots of stuff. I just, um, don't you just love worship? Wasn't it awesome tonight? Drummer or no drummer? Did you have a metronome in your ear? I wouldn't be able to keep time. I'd be speeding it up. (laughs) He did an amazing job. It's refreshing, isn't it, worship? And there's something else that's refreshing. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing my soul. And so are you ready for the word tonight? Are you ready to continue being refreshed? Sometimes we come in and we're ready for worship and that um, touchy, feely time with the Holy Spirit, looking for what he's going to do and what he's going to say. And, and we're, we have our expectations out there and worship for the anointing. And then announcements come and your expectation comes down and and then it's time for the word and we just yawn a little bit sometimes but I want to encourage you anytime it's time to sit under the teaching of the word how many of you know Jesus didn't have praise and worship at his meetings (laughs) but how many of you know the anointing was there every time because there's an anointing on the word So let's keep our expectations high anytime we come into the presence of the Lord. His presence is on his word. The anointing destroys yokes of bondage. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I think that's one reason why I love our worship so much, because it's not just singing. Our songs are packed with the word of God. So not only is it encouraging, but it builds your faith. It brings you faith. The word of God brings faith. Amen. So you're ready to have your faith built tonight? Ready to hear what the word of the Lord has to say? Me too. (laughs) I had a couple different things rolling around and I kind of got ready for both of them. I was like, honey, pray for me because I'm not sure. Still not sure. Father, help us. Help us. (laughs) Help me to say what you want me to say. Let your heart and your word come forth with power and anointing tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to start, I think, here with the word expectation. And um, when I think of expectation, when I think of expectancy, the word that comes to mind is always the biblical word for hope, which means a confident expectation of good. And how many of you have one of those tonight? You have something that you're believing God for. You have something that you need from the Lord. You have a confident expectation that God's word is true and what he said is going to come to pass. Amen. And for the most part, this time of year is a time of expectation and there, and of excitement. And there's um, some who have experienced loss or who are going through tragedy or who are going through a hard time where Christmas night might not be so exciting. It might not be such a time of expectation. You're just wishing it would just pass already. And if that's you, please know that we pray for you. But for the most part, Christmas brings with it a sense of anticipation and a sense of expectancy. Just look at any little child sitting on Santa's lap. They're telling him what they want, and they're expecting it under the tree, aren't they? But this time of year also reminds me of Mary, right? She was expecting, wasn't she? And anybody who says they're pregnant, what do we call them? We call them expecting. They have a confident expectation that there's a baby coming in nine months, right? (laughs) They have a confident expectation of something. 
But sometimes our expectation and reality in our life don't always seem to match, do they? And you talk to some moms that are getting ready to be a mom for the first time, and their vocabulary is very ooey-gooey. They have that ooey-gooey side of expectancy, and they're talking about how they can't wait to snuggle the baby. They can't wait to love the baby and connect and bond with their baby. And it's all about the nursery theme and the color scheme and the crib and the bassinet. And I'm getting the car seat and the clothes. Oh, look at all these little clothes. And they hold them up to their belly, and it's just so cute. And then they have the baby. (laughs) And then there's, you know, the postpartum blues that some people have and the sleepless months. It's not just a sleepless night here or there. Some of us have, how many of you had sleepless years? Moms, can you attest? (laughs) Sometimes I still (laughs) have sleepless years. And the pain that comes with it, you know, that's never part of the conversation when they're at the shower and they're, oh, the clothes and the snuggles and the fatigue and the sleeplessness and did I say the tiredness and (laughs) exhaustion, getting pooped on, getting peed on. Reality sets in, doesn't it? (laughs) You can relate to that though, can't you, baby? He didn't change many diapers, but when he did, it was always, it was always an adventure. <laughs> One day we'll tell, we'll tell the story. It's fun, but we'll get back to, get back to the message. But after reality sets in, their expectation of what motherhood was and the reality of what, what those first few months really are, they don't really look the same. And they come in and their hair's all, and they're dragging the baby and their makeup's down their face. How is it going? Oh, it's not what I expected. Because <laughs> reality sets in, and ex- it's my hair all messing up. And expectation can be different from reality. So what we're going to look at tonight And we're going to look at this from the Christmas story, actually. We're going to look at what do we do when our confident expectation of good doesn't look so good? What do we do when our confident expectation of good doesn't turn out the way we thought it would? When discouragement comes in, when disillusionment comes in, when depression comes in, what happens when our confident expectation of good doesn't look good? So we're going we're gonna to go to the beginning of the Christmas story. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles. Anybody know where we're going to turn? Luke? Luke 1? No, we're going to Genesis, people. Go to Genesis. <laughs> Not what you expected, was it? <laughs> because the Christmas story doesn't start in Luke 1. The Christmas story starts in Genesis, and actually it doesn't technically start in Genesis because Jesus was what? The lamb slain before the world was ever formed. Christmas was the answer before we ever had a problem. Amen. But the first mention of Christmas is in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and we all know the story. The serpent came and deceived Eve, and she ate the apple. Ladies, it wasn't even chocolate. It was an apple. We're going to have a conversation when we get to it. It wasn't a 
salted caramel chocolate chip cookie, anything. It was an apple, really? You couldn't resist an apple? Anyway, <laughs> that was a side note. But he comes, God comes down the line, tells the woman this, tells the man this, and then he turned and he, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. First mention of Christmas. He will strike your head. This is referring to Jesus. And if you hop, skip, and jump through the Bible, the next mention of Christmas, maybe not the next one, but one that we're going to look at, is in Genesis chapter 12. Not the normal place you go when you're thinking about the Christmas story. We're not going to turn here Christmas Eve and read it with our kids, but this is all part of the Christmas story. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. This is speaking of Christmas. This is speaking of Jesus. So we see Christmas again if you go to Genesis 45. How many of you have ever read Genesis 45 and thought of Christmas? <clears throat> but this is in the story of Joseph. Now Joseph isn't even one of the top three, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. But without Joseph, there would be no Jesus. Why? Because God sent him, verse 5 says, when he's revealing himself to his brothers who sold him into slavery, then he got put into prison, then he got left and forgotten in prison, and he finally got promoted to second in command of all of Egypt, and then his brothers come and bow down to him. His dream is fulfilled. He's finally revealing himself to his brothers, and he said, but don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your life. Joseph's dream, Joseph's call, his whole purpose in life was to preserve the family line of Jesus, to make sure that he could keep his covenant with Abraham. He had to have Joseph do what Joseph did or the famine would have wiped them all out. So Joseph is part of the Christmas story. Another person that's part of the Christmas story is King David. And in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, it says, this was when David wanted to build the house for God. And he told, he told Nathan the prophet, he said, I'm living in this palace and God's just out in there in a tent and I want to build a house for him. And Nathan said, that sounds good. Go ahead and do it. But then God appeared to Nathan, the prophet Nathan and said, no, that's not going to happen. And he gives them this whole thing. But in verse 16, God tells David through the prophet, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time and your throne will be secure forever. This is speaking of Jesus. This is part of the Christmas story. 
Now the next one we're going to look at sounds familiar because we do read this one for Christmas. It's in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And it says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called, you want to say it with me? Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Amen. We say that at Christmas, don't we? His go- because it's part of the Christmas story. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. And I just want to read this real quick from the voice translation just because it's so unique the way it puts it. It says, Hope of all hopes, dream of our dreams. A child is born, sweet breathed. A son is given to us, a living gift. And even now, with tiny features and dewy hair, he is great. The power of leadership and the weight of authority will rest on his shoulders. His name, his name will know in many ways. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Dear Father, Everlasting, Ever-Present, Never-Failing, Master of Wholeness, Prince of Peace. His leadership will bring such prosperity as you've never seen before. Sustainable peace for all time. This child, God's promise to David, a throne forever among us to restore sound leadership that cannot be perverted or shaken. He will ensure justice without fail and absolute equality always. The intense passion of the eternal commander of heavenly armies will carry this to completion. Amen. This is Jesus. This is part of the Christmas story. We're actually going to look at this a little bit later to how this caused some people to stumble and have an unrealistic expectation of what Jesus was going to be. But through hundreds of prophecies, this one included in all of the prophets. How many of you read through the Bible every year? That one-year Bible? If you don't, it's really good to, to start doing that. How many of you skip through the prophets? You hop, skip, and jump <laughs> through some of the prophets. <laughs> I used to do that too. But there's so much in them. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about that first coming of Jesus. And we see this all through the Old Testament. And then at the end of Malachi, what do we have? The book of Matthew, right? It just jumps right into the book of Matthew. Now, in reality, at the end of the last book, at the end of the last prophecy, we had 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence. Prophecy after prophecy, promise after promise, Messiah is coming, Savior is coming, Messiah is coming, and then nothing for 400 years. And how many of you think you've been standing for a long time for what God's promised you? 400 years of silence, no prophecy, no prophets, no message, no word from the Lord. Imagine the discouragement and disillusionment that these people had. And then God breaks his silence with an earthquake and announces the birth of his son, right? God goes to the 
most well-known person in Israel and uses him as a mouthpiece to tell the whole country that Jesus is born. Is that how God broke the silence? He didn't break it with the mighty miracles for all to see. He didn't, he didn't send fire and wind and earthquake. He didn't speak through the priest. He didn't speak through the government. He didn't speak through celebrities of the day. He came to one person first when he broke his silence. Now we'll go to Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, verse 13, we have the story of Zechariah. And for time's sake, I'm just kind of sum up what happens here. The angel Gabriel appears to him and tells him his wife's going to have a baby and he's going to be the Elijah that everyone was looking for and he was going to be a prophet and he was going to be great and he was going to be mighty. And Zechariah says, what are you talking about? And the angel says, you doubted. You're not talking till the baby's born. This is going to come to pass. And I have my own thoughts on that. We don't have time to cover it now. But Zechariah had just gone into the temple He was just going about his daily duties. He wasn't doing anything special. He wasn't fasting and praying. He wasn't worshiping for hours and hours, trying to get some kind of breakthrough from God. He was doing his thing. He went to work. And just going about his day, God broke a 400-year silence to one man. It was not what anybody expected. Zacharias didn't expect it. His wife didn't expect it. The people who who were outside of the courts didn't expect it because he came out and he couldn't talk. And they were confused as to what happened. Nobody expected God to break the silence like that. And then in, in verse 26, we come down to Mary. And what does the angel say to Mary? Hello. <laughs> Hello, you are highly favored of God. And the Bible says she was like, what? And he tells her, you're going to get pregnant and you're going to have a baby and you're going to call him Jesus. I'm like, really? You think that's how fast it's going? There's nine months of this and, and you don't just get pregnant and have a baby. There's stuff that goes on there. But it's not what Mary expected either. Because he said, you're going to get pregnant. You're going to have a baby. His name's going to be Jesus. He's going to be Messiah. And she said, how can this happen? I have not even known a man. And he said, the power of the Most High is going to upon you. And the, you know, shadow of the Lord is going to overshadow you, whatever it says. I don't have it. I mean, I do have it memorized, but I can't pull it up right now. But, and she went, oh, yeah, that explains it. I understand perfectly. No, she didn't say that. She didn't understand it all, but she said, you know what? Be it unto me according to your word. But do you think that's what Mary expected to be happening when she was in there washing the dishes? I dare say no. It was unexpected. He called her highly favored, but most likely she was highly scorned. It wasn't very convenient for Mary to say, be it unto me according to your word. It wasn't very convenient for her to get pregnant before she got married, you know? Joseph was going to divorce her. He was thinking how he could put her away quietly. Favored? Highly favored of God. 
doesn't always look like favor with man, but eventually it will always line up. That's why you can't judge your circumstances by what they look like. You have to judge them by the word of God. Highly favored. God had to do some marriage counseling, went to see Joseph, said, no, don't leave her. But it wasn't what she expected. She had her baby not at home with her family and friends all around to help. She didn't even have her baby in a warm house. She was out in the barn, people, with the animals. Who's ever been in a barn? The lovely perfume (laughs) of the hay and what's under the hay that comes out of the animals. Are you with me? Not sanitary. Not what she didn't have her baby's going home outfit with her. She didn't have the car seat ready. She (laughs) was not what she probably expected when she ever pictured herself having a baby. It was unconventional. And then he broke his silence to the shepherds. And he said, the king of Jews is in the manger. There was no pomp or circumstance for man to see. Far from home, in the stable, wasn't what anyone expected. I don't think those shepherds expected that. And they, in fact, they were probably all going, hey, did, do you see that? Oh my, do you see that? Get the phone, take a selfie. <laughs> the guys at Dunkin' Donuts are never going to believe this. Not what anybody expected. If you read through the Gospels, you'll find that the religious people of the day, because of the way that Jesus was born, because of all these unexpected things, because of all these low-key things, because of the way that God did it, the religious people of the day didn't accept him because he wasn't what they expected. And they didn't believe he was Messiah. John 1.10 says, He entered our world, a world he made, yet the world did not recognize him. Why? Because their expectation of what God should have done didn't match what God did do, so they didn't receive him. They let go of Messiah and clung tight to the way they thought it should happen, and they missed the miracle. They let go of the wrong thing, don't you think? They rejected him because he was from Nazareth. And the Bible was clear that he was going to be from Bethlehem. Now, he was born in Bethlehem, but when you say you're from Warren, if I say I'm from Warren, Ohio, that generally brings the tendency that I live there. When I say I'm from, where are you from? I'm from Warren, Ohio. It's where I grew up. With the exception of five years of my life, this is the only place I've ever lived. That's where I'm from. And so they had an expectation that Jesus was going to be from Bethlehem. He came from Nazareth, living there, but he was, God made sure he was born in Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy. But that's not what the religious people of the day thought it was going to look like, so they clung to their expectation and missed the miracle. And I love how God made sure that happened. He did it with a tax. The government, the wicked government, the wicked government, God used, say God used, 
a wicked government to fulfill prophecy. Now let that blow your mind for a minute. God used a tax to fulfill prophecy. Who loves their taxes? I bet they were complaining about the tax against the wicked government complaining. (laughs) But God used it to fulfill prophecy. Not what anyone expected, is it? They rejected him because he fraternized with sinners and tax collectors. Oh, Messiah would never do that. He's holy. Messiah. And so since he wasn't what they expected, they, re- they let go of the miracle. Don't we know him? Don't we know his family? He healed on the Sabbath. Nobody who healed on the Sabbath could possibly be from God. Don't they know the tradition? He wasn't what they expected. They couldn't let go of what they thought it should look like, and they were disillusioned and let go of Messiah instead. But they weren't the only ones who did that. You ready for another one? Matthew 16. One of Jesus' own disciples was disillusioned. Matthew 16, 21. <clears throat> and this is where, we remember where Jesus went to his disciples and said, who does man say that I am? Some say you're Elijah, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, who do you say, say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, man has not shown this to you. God in heaven revealed this to you. On this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against this. This high point in Peter's life. Number one, he's one of Jesus' best friends, right? There were the three, the 12, the 70. Peter was one of the three. It was Peter, James, and John. If Jesus was doing anything of significance, Peter, James, and John were always there. So he was one of Jesus' best friends. But in chapter 16, verse 21... Hold on, let me change translations here. It says, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. I love it. Peter took him aside to correct the creator of the universe. At least he didn't embarrass him in front of the other disciples, right? He did it right. He took him aside privately. Come here, come here, Jesus, come here. I've never heard you talk defeat before. And what is all this talk about? You're going to die and leave us. I don't like this. This is, you're going to have victory. You're just going, we're going to have victory in this. Don't talk death. We're going to talk victory. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Don't you know that, Jesus? Let me tell you what's going to happen. You know why Peter did that? Because his expectation was Isaiah. Nine, 
the government's going to be upon his shoulders. He's going to come and he's going to set us free. And there's going to be freedom and liberty. He thought, and all the disciples pretty much thought, that Jesus was coming to set up an earthly kingdom and relieve them from the tyranny of Rome. And now he's saying he's going to die? What is this about? Because Peter's expectation of what Jesus was supposed to do didn't line up with reality, did it? Because Jesus was talking death. And he told Peter, uh, you're looking at this wrong. You're looking at this just from man's point of view. God's got a plan here. Had Peter been praying about that, he would have been praying against the will of God. What he was saying was, the cross and salvation of all mankind must never happen. This is a bad thing. The cross looked horrible to the disciples. It looked horrible to Jesus' mother. It was painful. How can you even be saying this is the will of God? Isn't his will to prosper us and not to harm us, to give us hope in a future? And yet how many of you have ever been in a situation where you've looked up at God and said, this hurts me, this has harmed me, you said it wouldn't, and I'm mad. Anybody? And I'm sure that's exactly what the disciples were thinking. They were looking at it merely from a human point of view. Sometimes our expectation of what God should do, how he should do it, when he should do it, it doesn't match what's actually happening in our life, doesn't it? Doesn't it sometimes mismatch our ex confident expectation of good and what's actually happening, our worlds apart? So what do we do when that happens? Discouragement can set in. Depression can set in. Wow, what's going on, God? So what do you do when it feels like God has let you down? You have to let go of your expectation. Not your expectation that God is going to move. Your expectation of how God should move. Because if we get discouraged and disillusioned and disappointed... What we are really saying is we're being like Peter. Okay, now, Creator, come here, because you're just really not doing this right. If I was God, <laughs> you'd have healed me five weeks ago, and the check would have come yesterday, and I would have won the lottery, and if I was God, this would all look completely different. You need to, to come into line. We correct the Creator of the universe. Anybody ever done that? Anybody want to repent right now? <laughs> Forgive us, Lord. <laughs> but we need to let go of our expectation of how and what and when and just trust. We have to trust God like Abraham did. I'm sure when God gave that promise to Abraham, he didn't say, I bet this is going to take 25 years. But he trusted Joseph didn't expect <laughs> his brothers bowing down to him to include the pit or slavery or prison or any of that. But it was all God's plan. Do you see that? 
God wasn't taken by surprise when the brothers threw him in the pit. (laughs) Or when he was put in slavery. Or when he was lied on and put into prison. God wasn't surprised. God had a plan to line his steps up. Oh, Lord, we want to be in the right place at the right time. Divine appointments, kingdom connections, divine steps ordered of God. But we're never thinking slavery or prison, are we? No, we're just thinking the snuggles of (laughs) the baby. We're not thinking of the exhaustion. We need to step up a little higher sometimes and see things from God's perspective. I'm going to end with this. I'm going to end. I am going to end. <laughs> I promise. I see that it's, it's 830. But just can you all give me just a couple more minutes? Jeremiah 32. And I hope this brings somebody hope. Now I have to find it because I don't have it highlighted in here. I wasn't going to say it. Oh, but I have it in my journal. See, it's a good thing to journal. I just saw this the other day, and it, I thought, yes, Lord. Hold on. It's Jeremiah 32, verse... Ah, 36. And Jeremiah was a prophet to Judah. Israel had already been taken captive. Let me just give you a two-second background, or maybe 10 seconds. Israel had already been taken captive. The Babylonians were like knocking on the door, ready to take Judah captive. And so Jeremiah is prophesying, you're going into captivity. There's going to be war. There's going to be fatigue. There's going to be famine. All these things are going to happen. And it was true. God was telling him to say those things, right? And if you read all the verses coming up to it, most of them are about that. (laughs) And then in verse 36, it says, now God says, now I want to say something more about this city. You have been saying it will fall to the king of Babylon through war, famine, and disease. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I will certainly bring my people back again from all the countries where I will scatter them in my fury. I will bring them back to this very city and let them live in peace and safety. They will be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one purpose to worship me forever for their own good and for the good of all their descendants. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good for them. I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me, and they will never leave me. I will find joy doing good for them and will faithfully and wholeheartedly replant them in the land. But verse 36 is what caught my attention. God said, you've been saying this, but I'm going to say this. Jeremiah was saying what he could see. He could see that Babylonia, the Babylonians were right at the door. They were ready to take them captive. God had said it was going to happen anyway. This is what I can see. And God said, well, now let me tell you what I can see. Because I see 70 years down the road. And 70 years down the road, you're coming home. And this whole chapter, this whole section of scripture was predicated by God telling Jeremiah to go buy a piece of property in Judah. And he said, Lord, why? 
why do I need to buy a piece of property here? They're going to come take the land. It's a waste of money. And God said, no, because in 70 years, you're going to need that property. You're going to need it. And so we live here in what we can see and what we're expecting and what our imagination is saying and what, what we want to see happen. And God's saying, no, come up here. You're so focused on this, you don't see what's two weeks down the road. Come on, you got to be saying what I'm saying. You were saying this, but now I'm going to say this. And if we're saying anything apart from the word of God, you're a hypocrite. Because his word is the only truth that matters in our lives. It is the only truth that matters in our lives. So what do we do when our expectation doesn't match reality? We have to come up here and say, all right, Father, this is what I see, but you need to show me what you see. And he will show you what he sees. And guess where he'll show you it? Here. I love worship. But the word is my lifeline. And it is my anchor. And without it, you don't know what he's promised. We don't know what he has covenanted with us for. And if you're in 400 years of silence, if it feels like you're in 400 years of silence, guess what? His word is always speaking. You don't have to wait for a word out here. You don't have to wait for a word in worship. For somebody to come up to you and encourage you, his word is always speaking. If you can't find a word for your situation, you come to a pastor or one of the leaders, deacon leadership team, we'll give you one. His word is always speaking and it's always bringing life. So what do we do when it looks like God has failed us? When our confident expectation of good doesn't look good, we look up and trust because he is at work in our situation for good And it's not over until it's victorious. Amen? Amen. Father, I (laughs) did my best. Now I just pray that you would continue to break this bread apart to each one as we leave tonight, Father. Just show them exactly, bring them hope in their situations. Show them exactly what word to hold on to, Father. Help us to let go of what we think it should look like and help us to trust your hand. Help us to trust your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Do you have anything else? That's it. You guys are dismissed, and we'll see you on Sunday.